0: Well, I'd like to start with this. Uh, um, you know, do you guys know what day it is? Yeah, happy Groundhog's Day. Uh, yeah, um, you say, Brett, what does that have to do with Bible prophecy? Well, I just, just wanted to point out, most people believe meteorologists or Punxsutawney Phil to tell the future when you have the Bible that's 100% accurate. Did you know did you know? Paxazani Phil is only 39% accurate? Uh, that's not a great record, uh, as it turns out. Um, uh, and meteorologists, uh, I guess the meteorologists are about 90% right if they're forecasting within 24 hours, which you and I can do that. Look, just look out the window, uh, honestly. I'm just going to say that. Um, and then on the 10-day forecast, it gets closer to 50%. And then after 10 days, it goes down to more like 39%. Uh, so uh, Punxsutawney Phil is, is about equal to your meteorologist, according to the, those that study such things. Um, um, I like this Phil is immortal. Uh, uh, it says something about how he drinks from the magical elixir of life to keep him. He's 124 years old. Um, I'm pretty sure he died a few times between there. Uh, <laughs> But uh, so that's the false prophecy right there. Um, uh, but but um, don't you love how the Bible, uh, you know, we, we know of our God, we serve a God. Well, Isaiah the prophet puts it this way 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is none else. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Um, Isaiah, man, he nails it down. I love that we serve a God declaring the end from the beginning. Um, it's it's amazing to think of God's view, but you and I get a bit of a, a, a an ability to see it from God's perspective through God's Word. Um, I always liken it to a parade. If you're watching a parade uh, on the side of the road with your you know, lawn chair and your, your you know, watermelon, and you're just kind of having a good time there, watching the parade go by in the summer, um, you're seeing kind of linear. And that's the way most of the world just sees what's going on. But if you get up in a helicopter and you look at the parade, you can see the, the, you know, the, the end from the beginning. Uh, you can see the bands and the floats and all the things, and you can see kind of the uh, bigger perspective. That's what the Bible does with you and I. We get to look at the bigger perspective. Bible prophecy does that for us. And that's what makes, I think, Bible prophecy so, so much fun. Some people say, it's scary Bible prophecy. Well, what's scary, if you ask me, is not knowing why stuff is happening. Um, you know, if I weren't a Christian and I saw what was going on in the world today, I'd be freaked out. But because I know what's happening and because the Bible declares what's going on, it really does give us um, confidence, not in ourselves or in who we're going to elect this year as president or, you know, what, what we're going to do about this or that or our military. We really get to put our trust in the true and living God. That's where our, our faith comes from. That's where our strength comes from. So, you know, proof of God's uniqueness is His includes his knowledge of uh, the control of the future by the way um there's there's uh, a theology out there. Greg Boyd pushes it. He's one of those guys that pushes. Uh, he's got books written about how God doesn't know the future, uh, and and uh, you know things are unwritten yet. And like, there's a whole movement within Christianity that like it's usually the really anti-Bible prophecy churches that are out there. They're they're teaching this uh, sort of uh, wacko view that God doesn't know the future. Uh, I would just say read your Bible uh, and and uh, uh, drop your you know cemetery. I mean seminary degree. <laughs> Um, sadly, a lot of cemeteries, seminaries are where the you know, faith goes to die. That's why we jokingly call it that. But um, that's part of God's uniqueness is that he knows the end, declaring the end from the beginning. And, uh, and whatever the Lord says he's going to do, he's going to do it. I love that. Well, I wanted to kind of focus a little bit on um, things that are going on in the Middle East is, uh things are heating up. Have you guys been keeping up with the news in the Middle East? Uh, man, there's a lot going on. And we'll just kind of focus on some of those things mostly tonight um, because I think they're important for us to consider. Um, you know, the Israel-Hamas war uh, continues uh, to, to go on. Uh, we're on day 120, I believe. Last time I checked, there are 132 hostages, uh, remaining in Gaza, most of them is, are Israeli, uh, but also some dual nationals, uh, according to the um, Israeli reports. But um, you know, the big thing that's going on is all the you know trying to work out a ceasefire. That's that's one of the things that's happening, and it's really kind of a a tough thing if you're watching this sort of from a if you're you know pro Israel. You, you sort of hope there's not a ceasefire, and that might sound horrible. You might even feel bad saying, oh, there shouldn't be a ceasefire. Um, uh, we'll talk about uh, civilian casualties a little bit tonight, because that's, that's what a lot of people accuse, uh, you know, we Christians who are supporting Israel and the, uh, the, the war that's happening. Uh, there's a reason why we support it, but it largely has to do with as long as Hamas exists, we know what they're going to do. We know it's in their charter. There's no mystery about what Hamas wants to do. They want to wipe Israel off the map. Uh, they want, to, you know, genocidal, talk about genocide, you know, um, Hamas in their charter. It says they want to kill Jewish people. Uh, and, and then, you know, they demonstrated that on October 7th. So as long as Hamas even is still kicking at all, uh, Israel's going to have an enemy shooting rockets and killing Jews. Um, that's just going to happen. So you know, they have to deal with that. Uh, so that's, that's one of the things we're gonna kind of continue to talk a little bit about. Um, one thing you've seen is the Houthi attacks um, on the shipping lanes there, uh, you know, um, down by Yemen. Um, that's something that's, you know, causing there a lot of trouble for the United States, but also for Israel. We'll talk a little bit about some of that. Um, also, uh, probably one of the more, a um, powerful Bible prophecy uh, that seems to be percolating, and I feel like there's a lot of people that largely don't even know about this. But it's it's huge, and you you guys probably know. You're you know I'm preaching to the choir here, but the um, you know the drone kill uh, up there of our own troops very sad. We lost three of our servicemen uh, a week ago, last week, and um, that's been just really tough. But the one that um, people are are not noticing as much, which they should, I think, is. The um, the Ezekiel thirty eight watch. What are we watching up there in Syria right now? Well, um, you know, as as the Gog, Magog nations of Ezekiel thirty eight, um, especially you know Russia, Iran, and Turkey. Kind of, I like I think of those as the big three of all the nations listed there in Ezekiel thirty eight. Um, if you're not familiar with that, you can you know read ezekiel chapter thirty eight. We've done whole teachings on that. but basically, uh, almost led by Russia, there's going to be an attack on Israel and uh, the uh, sort of a confederation of nations, um, Turkey and Iran, Russia, um along with some of the others we've we've done whole uh, studies on those lists of nations in ezekiel thirty eight. But um you know um, what's what's interesting is, um, all the players are right there at the northern border of Israel um, uh, between, you know, Syria and Israel. Um, and all within, you know, just miles of each other. And, uh, you know, as of 2023, Iran maintains 55 military bases in Syria. 55 military bases in Syria. Uh, and 500, uh, 515 other military points. The majority uh, in Aleppo and in deir ez-Zor, um, you know, um, and uh, the Damascus suburbs, there are 70% of the foreign military sites uh, are all in that area of the country, which is uh, right on the northern border. When, when I take people to Israel, and we go stand on Mount Bental and look over Syria. If you've been there with us, we like to get up on the Golan Heights. There's a mountain. You can look right down into Syria. Um, but as it starts to get dark at night, you can't see Damascus But you can see the light glow of Damascus over the horizon, Um, and it's just right there, uh, you know, and um, that's going to play into uh, some other things. You know, the Turkish Armed Forces um, and its ally, uh, you know, the Syrian National Army, have occupied, you know, areas of northern Syria since August of 2016, uh, and uh, the, the you know the army of the of the Turks continues to you know trickle over the border and they 're a huge presence uh, and then Russia, of course, Russia has uh, their military there which um, there's the, one of the things you have to understand the potential for catastrophe is really high, um, and one of the things that we 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 'll talk about here is um, with the United States saying we need to uh, you know deal with the Proxies of Iran, you know, as as we've lost our three servicemen, we need to deal with those, um, you know, groups that are hurting our own soldiers, um, military personnel. Um, One of the tricky parts of that is the same thing the Israelis have had to deal with. In Syria, um, you know, because of the Russians, the Iranians, the Turks, and others, you kind of have to be careful what you blow up. Uh, if you're bombing Syria, you got to be careful who you're bombing. If, if we bomb Russian troops accidentally, that's not going to be a great thing. Perhaps even more carefully, the Israelis have had to bomb, you know they've been blowing up runways and uh, arms uh, storages, you know caches of, of just uh, arms with the Iranian you know, uh, 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 soldiers have been packing up uh, weapons there, for, and, and the Israelis are, are famously you know known for blowing those things up um and um and it's it's very uh, strategic very surgical but all it's going to take is just one of those things to sort of go wrong uh, and the reason i mentioned that it's it's a bit of a powder keg um what could kick something like the ezekiel 38 war into gear um it could be something as simple as a mistaken you know uh, uh, errant missile or some somebody blowing up something they didn't shouldn't have shouldn't have or you know it's it's very something you have to be kind of careful about but um But I I believe there's another thing in that Middle East you should be aware of, uh, and that is the Isaiah 17 prophecy. We've talked about that um, up there in the destruction of Damascus. Um, uh, You know, it's it's an interesting uh, thing that the Bible says. Uh, If you you know your uh, ancient cities of the world, Damascus is deemed the oldest city in the world. Uh, It's kind of interesting. Um, uh, But... The Bible says it's going to be uh, destroyed. In fact, Isaiah 17, one tells it this way. The burden of Damascus, behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city and it shall be a ruinous heap. And the idea of ruinous heap is it's never gonna be uh, inhabited again. That's a prophecy about Damascus. And as it turns out, that's never happened. We've never in the history of the world seen Damascus become a ruinous heap where people don't live there anymore. But the Bible says that's gonna happen. So it's something to always keep your eye on. You know, uh, Israel's been bombing Damascus quite a bit lately. Uh, What's gonna make Damascus become a parking lot? Um, what 's going what's to be the, the, the um, catalyst that makes that whole thing go? Uh, it could be any number of things. Israel has promised uh, all of you know the proxies of Iran Hezbollah up there in the north with the Iranians and others saying if one of those you know, more high tech rockets cross the border into Israel and blow up Israeli targets then they've promised, the Israeli government has promised they will make a parking lot out of Damascus. That's, their, that's the threat that they have. Now, Israel's probably good for that, by the way. If you ever doubt Israel's, uh, you know, um, you know stick-to-itiveness to their word, they, they do. They're not like the Americans who say, you know, draw red lines, and then when people cross them, we kinda, then we draw another red line. The Israelis don't do that. Uh, when they say they're going to do something, they're usually pretty good for their word. So... Um, it is interesting that modern day Israel has threatened Damascus as sort of like, you you let those rockets come. Now you say, well, Brett, there's Hezbollah shooting rockets uh, across the border today. Uh, they're doing it all the time. They are. But it's really, uh, if it weren't so sad, I mean, uh, all these ha- uh, homes up in the northern region of Israel, they're all empty and they've had to evacuate whole towns up in the northern part of Israel um, It's sad, but at the same time, they're basically uh, lobbying over these very uh, dumb rockets. They're not smart rockets, you know, where they uh, are very accurate. Um, You know, they still use those old Katusha rockets uh, that just kind of indiscriminately sort of fall over the border and land wherever they kind of do. And once in a while they hit a certain target, but it's only by accident. So along with sort of low tech weapons, along with the Israeli Iron Dome, Um, much of Israel has been safe, even though rockets are flying. But but everybody knows that Hezbollah has high-tech rockets that they're not using. Um, Why wouldn't they use that, those high-tech rockets? Um, uh, I believe in and the the people up in the north, the Hezbollah, and all those guys, uh, along with Iran and and most of the proxies, know that if those rockets fly, Israel's promised, uh, to level Damascus and to defend herself as a nation. Uh, they know that Lebanon it would be in massive danger, uh, you know, and Israel's, Israel's uh, got the weaponry and the military to do this. Why aren't they doing something right now? Um, I believe they don't want uh, to have to fight in the South in Gaza and in the North at the same time. So they're sort of seemingly tolerating, if you would, those uh, rockets coming from the North. Um, but just so you know it's a powder keg like any number of things could go wrong at any minute um that brings me to our um you know our own servicemen uh it's kind of the same sort of thing with with the Houthis and the proxies of Iran attacking our, uh, our bases. Uh, and we've been attacked a lot since October, uh, shockingly. Um, but um, this last week is really sad. One of their drones uh, snuck in, and, and we saw three of our American service uh, personnel killed there. Um, you know, uh, what happened there, this, this base is in the northern part of the country of Jordan. I have a friend who lives just down the road from this base uh, in a place called Zarka, uh, where uh, you might think, well, Jordan's our friend. Jordan is, is an ally of, you know, sort of us and maybe Israel, kind of. Um, but uh, but as it turns out, some of the biggest terrorists uh, uh, that were a part of Al-Qaeda were from the town of Zarqa in Jordan, which is interesting. So, you, you know, you kind of have to realize there's enemies all over the Middle East of Israel and even of the United States. But but um, what happened here is one of their drones got through because we had a drone, one of our drones was, was coming in at the same time. And there was a little bit of a mishap or mistaken thinking that it was just our drone, but it was actually a hostile drone that came in and actually did its damage, which is really, really tough. So, so the big question has been this week, uh, why hasn't the Biden administration done anything yet? Um, but as it turns out, they're starting to do things, uh, even today. Uh, well, I should say starting yesterday, they really did start, uh, some, some attacks. Uh, the question is how far are they going to go? Uh, I, I, would like to introduce you to one of my, uh, personal favorite, um, you know, the, you know, these talking heads in the news and stuff that are, uh, talking about military and stuff like that. I always kind of enjoy hearing what the experts say. Well, I have, um, one expert, uh, by the way, 34, uh, 34 uh, personnel were wounded in this attack. It wasn't just the death of these three. I think we always forget about the wounded, you know, the wounded, uh, what, a, what a tough deal. 34 of our personnel uh, wounded there. Um, it's the first deadly strike against the US forces uh, since Israel Hamas war erupted in October. Um, and while we're still gathering facts about the attack, um, we, uh, we believe we know who's responsible for it. And it's always, always like we knew, proxies of Iran. Um, You know, it's funny because Iran's mission to the United Nations said in a statement on Monday that Tehran was not involved with the attack on the United States base. Um, They said, and I quote, Iran had no connection and had nothing to do with the attack on the U.S. base. The mission said in a statement published uh, in the state news agency IRNA. It added, there is a conflict between U.S. forces and res- uh, resistance groups in the region which reciprocate retaliatory attacks. So, um, so you know, Iran just, they, they get away with murder, literally. Uh, by using these proxies. And they say, well, we didn't have anything to do with that, even though they're Iranian weapons often, and they're also uh, uh, funded by Iran, uh, but Iran gets to sit on the sideline watching Americans killed, and uh, and sort of seem to be uh, innocent. So what's the United States gonna do about Iran? I think our response to Iran has great importance to do with what's happening in the whole Middle East, especially as it relates to Bible prophecy. Israel and Iran and uh, their relationship is something definitely to be watching, and we've been watching that for years. Um, I've been watching uh, Iran and their, uh, you know, uh, you know their work on getting nuclear weapon. We've been talking about that for years here. I'm kind of shocked it's taken them as long as it has, but it's largely due to some of the resistance. Even you know when we, uh, you know, in the previous administration here in the United States, we uh, sort of starved out Iran. They didn't have money to, uh, um, you know continue their work as much with their nuclear. And there also was uh, legitimate threats. Um, but, you know, when, when the Biden administration took over, we went, went sort of back to the Obama uh, sort of era where we were, you know, giving money to the Iranians and letting them get away with selling all kinds of oil. And so they've been having, they've been sitting fat with money and, uh, and they they've been enriching uranium. And so it's just created even more of a dangerous situation in the Middle East. Well, this, um, this uh, you know, guy I would like to introduce you to, he's, he's on the news. You'll see him on CNN, BBC. Um, Bradley Bowman serves, serves as a Senior Director of Center of Military and Political Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, the FDD. And, um, you know, they're kind of like advisors to people in the Pentagon and stuff like that. Uh, he focuses on U.S. defense strategy and policy um, he spent nine years in the U.S. Senate, including six years at the top defense advisor uh, to the, the then senior Republican on the Armed Services Readiness and Management Support Subcommittee. He served as National com- Committee uh, Security Advisor to Senator Todd Young, um, You know, uh, worked with General Petraeus, if you remember Petraeus back in the day. Um, but um, the thing that I'm, I'm most proud of this young man, I call him young because I still think of him as a kid, um, Bradley served more than 15 years On active duty as a US Army officer, uh, graduated from West Point, uh, including company commander, pilot. Uh, He was piloting a Blackhawk. He had 10, I think, Blackhawks under his command. Um, During 9-11, he was flying his Blackhawk in the D.C. area on 9-11 morning. He was the guy who stopped with his Blackhawk, became Air Force Two, and picked up Cheney at the time. It's kind of an interesting story um, uh, that he flew Cheney to safety during 9-11, all that. Just kind of an amazing story, uh, uh, spent a lot of time. Uh, in the Army, uh, staff, uh, the Pentagon, uh, who's a staff officer in Afghanistan. But he also happens to be my cousin, uh, cousin Bradley Bowman. Um, And Bradley's older brother... um, and I used to really give him a hard time because he was like a couple years younger than us. So we'd tie him up and duct tape him to walls and stuff like that. <laughs> um, now it's just kind of funny to me because he's, he's uh, one of the smartest guys out there. But I wanted just to introduce you to him because uh, one of these days I'm hoping to get him to come and talk to us about some of this stuff. There, I think there's few people, his area of expertise is the Middle East. That's, that's what he spends his whole time studying and he's been there a huge chunk of his life. He's fought in battles there, um, an amazing guy. But he was on BBC just the other day, a couple of days ago, and uh, I, th- I thought he summed something up that I wanted to kind of show you there. So let me—you'll just give this a listen. It's, it's just a couple of minutes.
1: So when you talk about a strong response, are you saying that it needs to go beyond a, a strike on the proxies? Does it have to, in some way, stretch the boundaries of what we might ordinarily consider proportional? My view is that what the Islamic Republic of Iran is doing is a decades-long strategy where they're the puppet master and they use terror uh, puppets, proxies around the region, I'm thinking of Hezbollah, Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and now the Houthis, to advance Iran's foreign policy objectives while displacing the consequences and the counterpunches onto others, usually Arabs. It's. It's going quite swimmingly for Iran because everyone's focusing on the proxies right now. Meanwhile, Iran is inching toward a nuclear weapons capability and and has has put at least on hold for now normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. So um, the bottom line is we can't have our adversaries from an American perspective thinking that they can kill American service members and get away with it. So we're going to see a strong response. I predict much of it will come in Syria. Maybe in Iraq, there's some reasons why the administration might want to avoid that. Um, And I think if we only go after the proxies and not go after some of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, elements, uh, particularly in Syria and elsewhere, then it plays right into Iran's puppet master puppet strategy that I just described. All that said, you'll have heard our discussion on the, the deal that's being discussed, was discussed in Paris at the weekend, and also the warnings from the Qatari Prime Minister, who was in Washington yesterday, that a response that goes too far could complicate the whole process. That's fine. It's interesting, though. People always express concern about escalation when America is talking about responding. But let me reiterate, 167 attacks since October 17th on U.S. forces. So how would anyone expect the United States to respond? And, uh, you know, I, I think in this moment, the danger really is too weak of a response. But I'll hasten to add, if the administration hits back hard and doesn't take steps to protect American forces, we're gonna simply see more American casualties. We saw that after the Soleimani killing in January 2020, where we had more than 100 Americans in two bases in Northern Iraq suffered from traumatic brain injury Hmm. because there wasn't sufficient air and missile defense in the region. So hit them hard, yes, restore deterrence if possible, but expect an escalation at least in the short term and make sure you've taken steps in advance to protect American forces. That's what I would be offering to the administration in this moment. Well, the president has put them on notice. Uh, we will keep watching through the night um, because it sounds like it could be imminent. Brad Bowman, thank you very much indeed for that.
0: I, I, I have to admit, I like, you know, the resolve of what we have to do uh, with the way he kind of puts that. Here's the thing that makes me sad a little bit about the United States is um, do we have the resolve to do that? Big question. We'll see. Um, and then uh what's our future looking like because um the Bible kind of tells us about uh you know the the nations and what they're going to do in the end times when it comes to the Gog Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38 the um, you know the, the Bible's clear on which nations are going to be attacking uh Israel uh and and what's going to happen to them and all that stuff but the thing that's a little troubling is there's some uh nations that are mysteriously quiet like uh during that conflict and the Bible doesn't say anything about the United States Um, But it does talk about these nations that will be standing along the sidelines saying, now, you know, Israel, behave yourself. And, you know, what a shame, what a shame uh, this is happening that Israel is being attacked by Turkey, Russia, Iran, you know, uh, and these other uh, confederation of nations. Um, And it's just sort of these, uh, you know, protesting bystander nations. And more and more the United States seems to sort of behave that way when it comes to Israel, Um, We showed uh, a little more support than I even anticipated with the October 7th situation, and the United States, you know, has shown support. Um, But um, one of the things that I think we, we are starting to see is what Biden's real objectives are. Um, Why did Biden send the Gerald Ford uh, in this big show of force in the Mediterranean? And remember, I was even saying I I compliment Biden for being more supportive of Israel than I would have imagined uh, during after the October sixth situation. But um, Steve, the tour guide, was bringing this up uh, months ago. If you remember, Uh, I think I showed a snippet of this. But he's talking about uh, Biden's, you know, gambit. What's his game? And that's what's starting to come out. In fact, have you guys heard? It's kind of the buzzword out in the news right now, Bi- the, the Biden doctrine. Is it? Are you guys familiar with the Biden doctrine? It always cracks me up. What is he, a preacher? Uh, I'm the guy who teaches doctrine from the Bible. But um, the word doctrine just means, you know, teaching. So what is the Biden doctrine? Well, everybody's starting to talk about it. Um, Biden and his teams, which um, the big question I have is who's, who's advising Biden on all these things? And the answer is nobody really knows. Uh, there's, there's, you know, there's people say it's the O'Biden administration, you know, and they, uh, I understand that, I get that. Maybe it is, um, but, um, but you know, we wonder, you know, where is he getting his, you know, experts? Um, you know, and uh, it, it's kind of interesting, but the, the, Biden, uh, the, the Biden doctrine is something that as Bible prophecy people, we should watch because um, it feeds right into, if you ask me, the Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14 prophecy about the second coming of Christ. What are the conditions gonna be when Jesus returns? Well, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14 talks about that as it relates to Jerusalem and Israel. Um, uh, Some of the things you'll note uh, from Zechariah is uh, there's gonna be nations who are gonna try to do what to Israel or Jerusalem? They're going to try to handle Jerusalem, and it's going to be a cup of trembling, a stone that crushes. Remember that. Uh, and then, what are the right before the second coming of Christ? What are they going to try to do to Jerusalem? Chop it in half. Now, the the cutting of Jerusalem in half. There's a line already drawn. It's been there for years and years. When the Jews took over uh, the Temple Mount, when I told you last Sunday about Moshe Diane and that whole thing, you know that line. What what uh, what I would call the the sixty seven border. Um, if you look at the 1967 border before the Jews took over uh, that region um, in defending their their nation, um, Jerusalem was chopped in half, you know, kind of by that line, the 67 line. Now, when Obama was a president, he said, we need to get Jerusalem back to the 67 border. Like he said that over and over again. And that always, it was curious to me because that is in essence saying, we need to chop Jerusalem in half. And as a Bible prophecy person, you kind of have to say, wow, Uh, The second coming, like it it could be near, because uh, they're talking about that. Well, that's been somewhat of a silent thing since the Trump administration. Trump's administration wasn't talking about sixty-seven borders at all, um, but moved the capital, you know, nationally uh, accepted capital of Israel to Jerusalem. Like the Trump administration was much more friendly and was not into the sixty-seven border thing, and it gave us a little bit of a reprieve. And then the Biden administration kind of picked up where Obama left off, um, you know, not being a super friend of Israel, except for after October 7th, the Biden administration was supportive and we sent the Gerald Ford and a, a huge, huge fleet and, and shockingly really backed Israel. But, but the, the game of Biden might just be to show this support so that we can control, the United States can control what Israel does in the future, especially with the Arab-Israeli conflict and going back to those borders. Um, I've got a picture here of uh, Thomas L. Friedman. he's the guy on the right there. Um, and, you know, um, it's funny because this, this was recently at the World Economic Forum that basically godless, uh, you, know, uh, you know, it's basically a globalist, crazy uh, 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 group of people that want to bring in the end times. I mean, like if you ever want to know what the end times are going to look like, just read what these guys are into, the World Economic Forum. That's, that's pretty much going to lead right into the tribulation period. But I've done whole other things on that. But, but um, it is interesting that um, the Biden administration and this, uh, this Thomas L. Friedman, he's a, you know, a writer for the New York Times, and you might say, well, who cares about a writer for the New York Times? But this writer sort of has um, a connection with the Biden administration. So when he writes stuff, you, it's almost like um, each administration has, um, you know, press people that they sort of leak what they're doing to those people in the press to make sure their information is getting out. Well, this is what Thomas Friedman's sort of known for. Um, but basically, Friedman wrote an article uh, that was sort of a big deal a couple days ago, a Biden doctrine for the Middle East is forming, and it's big. Um, it's a big plan uh, to uh, do what? Well, it's, it's basically got three tracks. On one track of, of the Biden doctrine would be a strong and resolute stand against Iran— um, which that would be probably good uh, if we would do that, including a robust military retaliation against Iran proxies and agents in the region in response to the killing of the three US soldiers at the base in Jordan. Um, and so what's interesting about track one is they've begun that uh, even yesterday and, and today. I'll, I'll talk more about that in a second. Um, the second track of this Biden doctrine would be an unprecedented U.S. diplomatic initiative to promote a Palestinian state right now, like just just like they wanted to attack the proxies, which we're doing today. Biden administration saying we need a Palestinian state now, um, and. Some people say, oh, but the Palestinians need a state and they need a place to go. I understand the problem and I do have compassion for the Palestinian people that just want to live free. Um, that's a, 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 interestingly a small number. The Palestinians mostly, the most of them, want to drive the Jews into the sea and don't want them to exist. Um, there's a misnomer out there that it's all these innocent civilian people uh, who love the Jews and they're just controlled by these horrible Hamas people. The Palestinians elected Hamas down in Gaza to be their government, um, and there's a, a we've we've talked percentages of what you know the Palestinians support Hamas and are against Israel. Um, it's been shocking to hear some of the stories from the freed hostages that were in Gaza um, when they came back. They were being abused not by you know Hamas fighters, but by women in the houses and, and uh, children uh, and like it, there's a there's a culture of uh, not just anti-Semitism, but ethnic uh, cleansing, genocidal sort of attitude toward Jews. So this idea of a a Palestinian state uh, existing next to a Jewish state, uh, it's so ridiculous on so many levels. First of all, because the the worldview of the Palestinian is to wipe out the Jew um, by and large. Not only that, um, this uh, Palestinian statehood would, uh, in, in every time we talk about this, it would split Jerusalem in half. They'd give half of Jerusalem to the Palestinians, half of Jerusalem to the Jews, uh, and we'll see how that works. That, that's not gonna work. Uh, that's, that's Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14, uh, unfolding in, right in front of our eyes, if that's what they wanna do, chop Jerusalem in half. Some are arguing for a you know, a Palestinian state and a Jewish state, and then Jerusalem sort of this um, um, free zone. Uh, good luck with that, I would just say. Um, one of the things that uh, I, I am very dubious or doubtful is um, have the Palestinians wanted a state alongside of Israel? Have they ever wanted that? How many times have, have there been offers and you know agreements and accords and documents signed where the Jews, I remember when Ehud Barak years ago offered the Palestinians the kitchen sink. People were furious with Ehud Barak because he, he basically offered more than, than what anybody ever imagined, them offering the Palestinians to have their own state. Um, and they firmly, vehemently denied that back when Ehud Barak uh, uh, offered that. And when they asked Barak, why did you do that? Um, he said, I just wanted to show they're not interested in peace at all. They don't want a, a half or, or even more than half they want the whole thing or nothing. Death before they would uh, live alongside of a Jewish state. So uh, already, I feel like the Biden doctrine is gonna uh, fall flat, obviously, because um, the Palestinians don't want what's being offered, not even close. Um, but here's, here's what Biden doctrine teaches, basically. They wanted to have a Palestinian state now. It would involve uh, some, this I'm reading from the article that Friedman wrote, Um, It would involve some form of U.S. recognition of a demilitarized Palestinian state in the West Bank and in Gaza Strip that would come into being only once the Palestinians had developed a set of defined, credible institutions and security capabilities to ensure that this state was viable and it could never threaten Israel. Good luck with that. Um, Biden administration officials have been consulting experts inside and outside the U.S. government about different forms of this recognition of Palestinian statehood that they might take. So that's track number two. Uh, So first track, deal with Iran. It's a mutual enemy of Israel and the United States. we got to deal with Iran and all the proxies. Okay, that's a good idea. I think that would be a good thing to work on. But the idea of Palestinian statehood, uh, that's going to be fraught with disaster. Um, and if, if the Biden administration is successful, then we start praying as Christians, Lord, come quickly. Like it, it really could be, that could be one of the things that um, sparks, you know, uh, what we read about in Zechariah 12 and 14. Could it not be? It's possible. There's other ways that could go. But it's definitely sounding very much like what the prophet's, Said about the the situation in Jerusalem. uh, It's very much like what they're suggesting, the chopping of Jerusalem in half. Well, on the third track, and and, um, this is important, um, they they would vastly expand U.S. security alliance with Saudi Arabia, which would also involve Saudi normalization relations with Israel. Um, If you know the geopolitics before October uh, 7th, um, it was close, you know, the Abraham Accords, which is kind of interesting uh, if you're a Bible prophecy, like geopolitically, the Abraham Accords, yay, Abraham Accords, amazing. But if you know your Bible prophecy, the Abraham Accords is actually not a great thing for, for Israel and for the whole picture. Uh, it's kind of a, a funny thing because we know what the Bible says is going to happen with these same nations and stuff like that. So um, it's, it's sort of the calm before the storm, if you ask me. But one of the things, um, Israel and Saudis were starting to talk uh, about a peace agreement. So the United States is saying, we need to get back to that. Uh, you know, the Hamas conflict put that agree- those agreements on hold. Let's get back to Saudi. If the Israeli government is prepared to embrace a diplomatic process leading to a demilitarized Palestinian state led by a transformed Palestinian authority, Now, that's the question. Where do you find transformed Palestinian authorities? Um, You know, maybe find the born-again Christian Palestinians and put them in charge. I don't think that's what they're gonna do, but there are born-again Christian Palestinians and I love those guys. I've got friends in Jerusalem that are Palestinians who are amazing people. Um, they should be put in charge. But uh, there are Palestinians, by the way, that just want nothing more than to be Israeli citizens. And they would love to just work in Jer- Jerusalem as Israelis. Like there's a whole part of that population. They realize they're just pawns. The Arabs are, are, are um, forcing them to be pawns in a conflict that many of them, especially uh, those in Jerusalem, they don't want anything to do with it, but they're sort of forced in it. So if the administration can pull these three tracks together that I just mentioned, um, and if that's a, a huge if, even Thomas Friedman admits it's a huge if, um, the Biden doctrine could become the biggest strategic realignment in the region since um, 1979. Remember the Camp David uh, Treaty there uh, back in 1979 with the Egyptians? Like that was, that was a big deal. That changed the whole geopolitics of the Middle East, when Egypt and Israel sort of had a, a treaty and that did change that region quite a bit. Um, some are saying this could be the big one, but I, I'm not gonna hold my breath, I'll tell you why. How many presidents have come and gone trying to make treaties with Israel, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and you see the president with outstretched arms as the Arabs and Israelis are shaking hands, um, sort of eye, eyeballing each other while they're doing it. Um, but it never comes to anything. Um, and you say, well, Brad, you should be more hopeful. Well, if it does, if that agreement does come to something, then the Lord's coming could be soon. Um, There will be a peace treaty signed between the Arabs and the Israelis during the tribulation period. And you know who's gonna broker that deal? The Antichrist, the the book of Daniel talks about this. If you read Daniel nine, one of the components of the last 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years, which is called the tribulation, it says they'll sign a covenant um, with this coming world leader. uh, They're gonna seemingly find peace. So, you know, Biden better hope he's not the guy who solves the Arab-Israeli conflict because that makes him the Antichrist. (laughs) Now, are you gonna go and tell people, Brett said Biden's the Antichrist? I didn't say that, Uh, but I'm joking a little bit. But, you know, the one that's gonna seemingly solve that dilemma over there and and the Temple Mount and all that stuff, I think that's gonna be all part of the Antichrist coming up with some kind of a, a peace agreement that everybody's gonna sign. The Jews will sign that according to the book of Daniel, but then halfway through the tribulation period, three and a half years in, they'll see it for what it is. And it, 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 nothing but uh, demonic and satanic and um, the Jews are gonna realize they've been duped. But that's a whole nother story. So the three tracks, um, according to the Biden doctrine, absolutely have to be tied together, executed at the same time uh, for the Biden doc- doctrine to succeed um, And um, uh, the US officials are gonna start pushing this. You're you're hearing, you know, it's funny, it's like everybody's on the same memo or something because suddenly CNN's the Biden doctrine, the Biden doctrine, and everybody's starting to talk about the Biden doctrine. So they're they're unveiling their ultimate plan. Um, The internal divisions among Hamas leaders, are preventing the Palestinian terror group from um, backing the proposed hostage release deal. There's been deals suggested, ceasefires talked about, um, but uh, to no avail. And and it's largely the Hamas leaders that are not right now willing to agree to any ceasefire or pause in the fighting. the Wall Street Journal did a, a report on that uh, about how the, it's the Hamas that's kind of holding up uh, a ceasefire. But the Biden doctrine basically calling for the dividing of Jerusalem in half, that's nothing new, but if, uh, it's something to be aware of. And I'll just remind you, Zechariah 14.2, it says, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken, houses rifled, women ravished. That, that, by the way, that, that happened in the kibbutz down in the northern, pardon me, the southern part of Israel on the Gaza Strip border houses rival, women raped. Like that. that's what they did there, uh, just in a small scale. But in Zechariah 14, before, right before the second coming of Christ, it's gonna be more of an all Israel, all Jerusalem kind of thing. The city will be taken, houses rifled, women ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So this is kind of an important part, watching what's going on in Jerusalem, Watching the Biden doctrine, it's something to keep your eye on because um, if he's successful, which I doubt he will be, but if he if he starts moving in that direction, it's setting the stage for something the Bible actually warns us about uh, as being not good. Um, so, um, so on this retaliation against Iran, the defense uh, chief uh, says U.S. can respond to the attacks. Of the Houthis and all the proxies. Um, You know, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said Thursday um, that it will have a multi tiered response to the attacks against the American troops in Jordan and can respond several times, not over hours, not over days, but over weeks. So, what we're seeing today with um, some of the attacks. Uh, that we've uh, done, they're saying it's only the beginning. So it's gonna be interesting to see what we do with the uh, Iranian proxies. WorldNet Daily article, um, February 1st, yesterday. Was that yesterday? What's today? Yeah, it's the second. So this was. Yeah, this seems like a week ago, but um, yeah, the uh, U.S. destroys Houthi drones, operation site, anti-ship missile in less than 24 hours. That was yesterday. Um, took out more than a dozen Houthi drones, uh, a drone operations site, anti-ship missile in four separate incidents in less than 24 hours, uh, U.S. CENTCOM, Central C- Command, said in statements. Um, but, um, you know, uh, they carried out airstrikes mostly in a uh, control station in Yemen uh, and 10 more suicide drones they took out. And we called it self-defense because these are the drones that uh, are coming and attacking our military personnel. Um, So the centcoms forces forces shot down one airborne drone at 5 a.m. yesterday and then at 10.30 a.m. Engaged a waterborne drone. Like drone warfare is is happening. Um, It's funny that we're not in a war right now, but we're in a war. Uh, if, if you 're one of the soldiers who were killed you 'd know oh we 're in a war or one of the wounded soldiers, but we 're not willing to call it a war for various reasons uh, Times of israel article u s launches strikes on iran 's IRGC in Iraq um, Syria as response to deadly drone attack and that was today actually. Um, And uh, there's still reports coming back of what actually happened, what targets we hit. Um, You can't even really say for sure. In fact, the first reports came out, I think it was around noon today. And uh, everybody's saying, you you know, the United States attacked, there's explosions all over the Middle East. And and then they had to retract it saying, well, we don't know if it was the United States or somebody else. or Like they had to sort of back up a little bit and uh, cool their jets just a little bit. But now we're starting to hear the reports of what we have done. Um, U.S. President Joe Biden said the U.S. would respond to drone attack last week in Jordan that killed three US soldiers and will continue uh, at times and places of our choosing. Um, so that's, you know, we're, we're uh, whether we want to admit or not, we're blowing things up and we're attacking these Iranian proxies. Um, and uh, Israel's happy that we're doing it because uh, it's less for them to worry about. Um, you know, the, the Houthis uh, down in Yemen uh, shot a missile today at Eilat. Uh, that's where I take all the Athey Creekers to go scuba diving. Uh, it's a great little beach town uh, in southern Israel. It's just uh, right on the Red Sea. It's beautiful. If you, if you scuba dive there, it's like tropical Caribbean quality waters, you know, and little tropical fish. It's just a great place, except for the missile part. That's a, that's a bit of a, a bummer, um, so um you know Biden the thing that's interesting though is he's He's blowing stuff up, but he's also saying, we don't see conflict in the Middle East, you know? And we don't wanna, we're not not trying to start a fight here, you know? Um, But he says, anybody who wants to harm, you know, uh, American, we will respond, he says. So uh, it's gonna be interesting to see in the next week or two what exactly we do. But what's that gonna do with Israel-American relations, Israel-Iran relationships? How is that gonna play into the, that's one of the tracks of the three of the Biden doctrine is we got to take out some of these um, these uh, you know ho- hostile uh, proxies of Iran. Um, um, American forces uh, sent long-range bombers uh, hit over 85 targets. They say today that's a, that's a lot. Uh, and they 're all linked to the i r g c the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. Um, some people believe that 's the main thing is that we let Iran feel the pain because, like what my cousin said there the the Iranians are the puppet masters, um, you know with all the proxies taking all the hits. But iran's got to feel it if they're gonna if they're gonna uh chill out and stop doing the dastardly deeds they're doing against the Jews and against americans uh and you know when we've been aggressive uh in times past and hit Iran like when we killed soleimani uh, when the, during the trump administration uh there was silence and quiet for quite some time uh, the, the The Iranians do seem to respond when, when we um make them feel it a little bit in their um in their world um, instead of just being the puppet masters. Um, Speaking of the Houthis, uh, these are worth looking at the attacks uh, by the Houthis. They're mainly down there in Yemen, but they're shooting uh, everything from rockets uh, to uh, drones, uh, and they're attacking ships uh, in the Arabian Sea, in the Red Sea, the uh, Bab al mandeb Strait, Um, the Strait of Hormuz is a really important strait. We've done, uh, whole talks about the Strait of Hormuz and the strategic value of that. But right now, it's the Bab al-Mandib strait that is, um, is kind of, uh, and, and, uh, like my cousin said, uh, he said 167 attacks. There's actually been, as of today, 170 uh, attacks. And these guys are just going at it. Um, this sort of maps some of the big uh, attacks by the Houthis in the last uh, couple months. Uh, and so it's a big deal. They're trying to stop shipping. They're trying to blow up ships that are going to Israel uh, up through that uh, Red Sea Strait there. Um, um, One of the things, um, there's a lot of, you know, not only are there proxies uh, that that the Iranians are, you know, giving money and weapons to, the Houthis and the other Islamic sort of radicals, there's lots of them, Hezbollah, Hamas, all these. But, um, you know, there's operatives even within the UN. Uh, You know, it's interesting how uh, I always joke around about the United Nothing, the UN, but they're actually the United Something, but it's not a good thing. Um, and uh, did you see the news? Um, this is kind of not a shock to me, but uh, it's, it's, it only confirms some of the things that I um, that I've suspected. U.S. pauses funding to UN agency for Palestinians after claims staffers were involved with the Hamas attack. Um, th- um, the UN agency for Palestinian refugees um, uh, and a number of its staffers. Uh, were in Gaza, suspected of taking part in the October 7th attack by Hamas and other militants on southern Israel. Its director said Friday, prompting the United States, um, uh, the agency's biggest donor, to halt its funding. Um, um, An Israeli document obtained Monday spelled out allegations against a dozen UN employees the country says took part in the October 7th assault, claiming seven of them stormed into Israeli territory, including one who participated in kidnapping one of the hostages and another who helped steal a soldier's body and took it over the border. The allegations against the staffers, the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, prompted the United States and several other countries to freeze funds vital for the body which is a life, uh, lifeline for desperate Palestinians in Gaza. I would argue they're a lifeline, but they never really help the Palestinians that much. Um, the, that's why I call it the United Nothing. They seem to be very I- ineffective in all the things they want to do, except for being against Israel. Um, the United Nations has shown their hatred for the Jews. If you just count how many UN resolutions have been passed against Israel versus all the other UN resolutions against any other country in the world, the UN hates Israel, and they've demonstrated that. And then, so it shouldn't surprise us that this uh, agency within um, within the UN uh, was actually, uh, you know, sub- now by the way, this, uh, I forget the name of it. What's the... UNRWA, yeah, that's right. Um, they, uh, they actually say they're gonna cease to exist, this agency, uh, by the end of February unless these countries uh, give their funding back, like the United States, France, and others. And I'm kind of hoping we don't. We don't give them their money back. They don't deserve it. Now, your tax dollars shouldn't be paying for uh, the October 7th uh, you know, attack on Jews. That's that's the math of it all. So kind of interesting when it comes to the United Nothing, they're actually something, but it's all bad for the most part, uh, just to know that. Speaking of the world and anti-Semitism, hatred for the Jews, I want to update you on a couple of things too. Remember last time I told you about the, you know, the South Africans accusing uh, the Jews of genocide in the Gaza attack, and, and so it's going to the Hague, uh, and it's going to be a big hearing and all. Well, the hearing happened uh, there. Um, Reuters article, the IG, uh, ICJ ruling, key takeaways from the court decision in Israel genocide case. The Hague, uh, this is January 26th where they made their ruling. Uh, the International Court of Justice ordered Israel on Friday to take action to prevent acts of genocide as it wages war against Hamas militants in the Gaza Strip, but stopped short of calling for an immediate ceasefire. Um, so what did the court rule? The court ordered Israel to refrain from any acts that could be under the Genocide Convention and ensure its troops uh, commit no genocidal acts in Gaza. This is sort of the Hague sort of saving face. Like um, they're saying, okay, we couldn't prove genocide, but you guys were watching you. You know, that's kind of the, the we're watching. You better do everything on the up and up because we're watching you, genocidal Jews. Like it's just so ridiculous uh, that the Hague would um, even allow that hearing to have taken place. Um, the narrative always, always seems to be against the Jews and Israel, and, and there's just the antisemitism seeps out of all these organizations uh, globally, nationally. Um, the narrative. Um, Now, Israel's not, I'm not gonna say they're always right and always doing the right thing. There are bad things, just like every country, there are bad apples and stuff like that. I'm not arguing for perfection, but let me just, uh, I'd like to share with you, I kind of feel like Christians, we should sort of, as supporters of Israel, we should at least have the narrative correct. And one of the narratives that you're hearing uh, is, you know, uh, this civilian death rate is so over the top there. Now, I'll just admit, civilian death in war that's always bad. Like what a heartbreak. Uh, When I look at what's going on with the um, Ukrainian-Russian conflict, it's the civilian deaths that breaks your heart more than anything. Uh, And that happens with all warfare, by the way. That's part of war is civilian casualties. And it has been from the dawn of time when man first threw rocks at each other. Um, Civilian death is part of the deal. Um, But uh, if you kind of listen to the world and all the Harvard professors and all the narrative out there, these Jews going into Gaza, they're just exponentially killing civilians um, without any reserve and they're just slaughtering innocent Palestinians. Um, I just want to make sure you know that's not even close to the case. The ratio of civilian deaths versus combat- combatants. Um, um, the claim is Israel's killing innocent civilians by the you know, tens of thousands. Um, civilian death uh, is guaranteed in warfare, by the way. It's, it's a guarantee. In fact, the UN has come up with numbers with the, which they've kind of uh, sort of acknowledged uh, as normal to heartbreaking, but still ex- expected. Uh, in, before this Gaza war, they've, they've actually published these numbers. Um, so while civilian death is tragic, the Hamas death, death rate, according to Hamas, uh, now, I'm, now if I say that because most of us don't believe Hamas's numbers, um, nor should you. But let's just give it to them for a second. Let's go with the Hamas numbers, right? Last time I checked, Hamas deaths rate was, they were saying 23,000 um, civilians have been killed. And you'll hear you know, the, the, all the people on social media talking about 23,000 innocent civilians were slain in the Palestinian conflict. Let's just for a second give that, probably grossly inflated, The IDF estimates that they've killed 9,000 terrorists. 9,000 were terrorists, okay? Now, so the the Hamas, they're reporting that 9,000 with their 23,000, just just so you know. Um, So um, let's talk about the, the civilian death versus combatant or the ratio thereof. If you do the math with using Hamas's inflated, exaggerated numbers even, um, let's give it to them. The ratio of civilian death is one and a half civilian deaths to every one terrorist that's killed. One and a half to one. Um, that's um, now that's probably even. Uh, it's probably less than what I just said. Uh, the the ratio is probably even better than that. Uh, the Hamas number doesn't include the terrorists. It also doesn't include the one they killed with their own rockets that fell short. Um, if you know, remember that hospital that was destroyed that they, you know, said 500, you know, Palestinians were killed by the Jewish rocket. Well, they had to later admit, oh, that was one of our rockets that failed to fly and hit the hospital. Our bad. But the world already had condemned Israel for that one. Uh, Anti-Semitism, you know, uh, food for the fodder, you know. Uh, um, but turns out that happens a lot. Remember these rockets I told you are not smart rockets; they're dumb rockets. And a lot of them launch and they don't go very far and they just kind of lob in and they've killed a lot of... Now you say, well, aren't the Hamas horrified that they're killing their own people? Of course not. They rejoice even when their people are killed because it has to do with their radical Islamic view of, of the disaster that needs to be taking place so they can blame the Jews. That's why they hide behind civilian uh, targets, hospitals and schools and stuff like that. So. Th- The number is probably less than one and a half deaths to every one terrorist killed, probably less than that, but let's just give it to the Hamas, that those numbers, the, um, the comparisons, according to the UN report, the average death ratio of civilians to combat in war is typically, and this is what they say is normal, nine to one, nine to one, nine civilians for every one combatant. That figure is disputed, but that's what they put out. I'm just giving you UN numbers. Um, what about Afghanistan In our 20 year war from the United States and UK sources, we've got it from the US and UK, are, uh, we, we consider ourselves very um, sanctimonious because we had a five to one ratio. For every one combatant, we killed uh, apparently five with bombs and stuff like that, five civilians, five to one. That was Afghanistan in the Iraq conflict, four to one, which was also um, uh, what they called surgical. We surgically uh, start only killing four civilians to one combatant. Um, So when you start looking at these numbers, how does Israel shape up on this? The Gaza conflict, one point five to one. The UN average report, nine to one. Afghanistan, five to one. Iraq, four to one. The Israelis are almost supernatural level. Uh, surgical striking. And by the way, urban warfare, the kind of warfare Israel's doing in Gaza is the hardest kind of warfare on the planet. Ask anybody who knows military and battles and and stuff like that. Um, It doesn't get more difficult than what the Jews are doing in Gaza. This extremely populated uh, urban warfare setting with these tunnels that go on for 300 miles Um, And the the Jews are still finding just massive uh, underground uh, systems uh, that they're still, you know, uncovering. Um, By the way, um, why don't they just fill all those, uh, you know, tunnels with gas or water or something and just, you know, flood them all out? Um, The answer is because they're probably looking for hostages. They don't want the hostages to be killed. So it makes them have to go down into these tunnels and uh, very carefully... Uh, search out for their hostages and what have you. It's quite a quite an amazing thing that Jews are accomplishing by one to f- one point five deaths to one. Um, don't let that narrative that you're hearing on the street. The Jews are just indiscriminately killing civilians. There's n- almost no example of warfare in history that is as um, as actually uh, careful as the Jews are in this particular conflict. I think that's important, especially the narrative of the world hating Jews. They love to go around saying genocide. The, the Jews are committing genocide in the Gaza Strip. Not even close. Well, uh, let's kind of, I got a few other things that just kind of bring up. Um, is anybody following the doomsday clock? Do you guys know what the doomsday clock is? Uh, it is kind of an interesting thing. This, this little presentation that did seemed a little goofy to me, but... For nearly 80 years, scientists uh, have indicated how, how close they believe the world uh, is to global catastrophe um, using the doomsday clock, doomsday clock. And they're saying, these are, these are not dumb people. These are people that study. Since we dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they all said, okay, we're doomed as humanity. So um, you know, they kind of look at the numbers, the math, the possibility of weapons being used, uh, nuclear weapons, um, You know, the apocalypse. And this is from more of a scientific method. For nearly eight years, they've been saying, okay, how close are we to the destruction of humanity? But um, one thing you should know is they, they upped the clock to 90 seconds till uh, doomsday, which is um, you know, the closest it's ever been to midnight. Midnight's when the, you know, the apocalypse is gonna happen, according to scientists. They hope it will alert public and pressure leaders into making better decisions and make the world a safer place. Um, why is the doomsday clock moving? Uh, you know these images I'm showing you here on this uh, this story. Um, it's because of the battles, the warfare, and who's got nuclear weapons. Um, like no other time in history, we've got crazy people with nuclear weapons who are willing to use nuclear weapons. Uh, in 2023, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists based in Chicago, Illinois, Illinois set the hands at 90 seconds to midnight, Because mainly because of the war in Ukraine and Putin with his nuclear arsenal. And he's been, you know, saber rattling, saying he, he's not afraid to use the nuclear arsenal. Not only that, maybe you saw this last week, even the British are, are testing new nuclear weapons. Did you see the testing, the Trident launch by the British to test fire nuclear missile uh, in a major show of force with sub launching a 44 foot Trident II missile for the first time since 2016. And I think their 2016 launch was unsuccessful so the world kind of said, "Oh boy, those British—they don't really have a great, you know." But um, this one was successful. They launched it right off the um, coast of Florida with United States permission, and uh, it, it did what it was supposed to do. This is a forty-four foot long—it's like a school bus going down the through the air. That's kind of amazing. But it can carry a huge nuclear warhead, and and uh, these submarines can can launch several of those. Um, So you've got, you know, nuclear nations, uh, you know, and I'm not as worried about the British as maybe the North Koreans or Iran. Iran getting a nuclear weapon is is right. They're right at the cusp, uh, according to the experts. In fact, uh, Bloomberg article, Iran increased stockpile of near uh, uh, weapons grade uh, uranium by 5% um this was uh, a couple months ago uh, people are saying it's even more now but um the you know the watching what iran has been doing it's been going up exponentially um you'll notice in 2021 it was very slowed that's because of what the trump administration was doing and then once uh, we switched administrations the uh, this current administration has d- different policy um and it's not working when it comes to the idea of the iranians getting a, a bomb they increased their stockpile of uranium uh, exponentially in the last few years, um, nuclear inspectors from the United Nations watchdog told diplomats Wednesday, this past Wednesday, Iran's stockpile of highly enriched uranium gained five percent compared to seven the previous quarter, but um, the international uh, the IAEA uh, uh, reiterated. It's complaints that uh, monitoring Iranians have been seriously affected. The Iranians um, removed surveillance equipment. Uh, Iran has directly and seriously affected the uh, uh, international atomic energy agency from being able to see or inspect what they're actually doing, which is always a bad sign. They really won't let the inspectors see. So some are speculating that the um, Iranians right now, and they've been speculating this for a long time. So is this another false alarm? I don't know. But there's a lot of brilliant people saying the Iranians are this close to a nuclear bomb. Now some of you are like, well, who cares? that Pakistan has bombs, and um, you know, uh, India has bombs, and uh, the North Koreans have bombs, and all that, and that's true. But one of the things you have to understand about the Iranians, um, the Iranians make um, Kim Jong Un look like a normal person. Do you understand? Like the the Iranian, um, you know, uh, uh, basically since the Islamic Revolution in Iran, the leaders are insane. Uh, Islamic militants and they believe they're going to usher in their their uh, sort of um, their coming of their twelfth Imam the by creating chaos in the world. Um, and, and they they haven't even tried to hide what they want to do. They want to cause chaos in the Middle East, even if it costs Iranian lives. They're willing to do that to usher in the twelfth Imam coming out of the well and all that stuff, which is a whole other story. Um, so the idea is the Iranians have threatened. Once we get the nuclear bomb, we're going to use it. Um, now they'll they'll say that on one side, and then the other side they'll say, "Oh yeah, we don't have, we don't have a nuclear. We're just using it for energy, uh, nuclear energy." Um, and they'll, but it just depends on what moment you hear them. If you want to hear Iranian um, propaganda um, unfiltered, uh, go to the Memory website. Does anybody go to Memory? There they, it's where they M uh, E M R I. It's it's where they translate uh, the Iranian news and some of these uh, Al Jazeera agencies that are not the American version of Al Al Jazeera, and you'll be shocked what you hear them say uh, when it's translated, but... Um, this, this is all Bible prophecy right before our eyes. Nuclear weapons will be used, it seems, in the Ezekiel 38 war. Um, remember how in Ezekiel 39, the aftermath of the, the battle is gonna be the cleanup where there's these professional people going around burying the dead bodies that are, uh, and if you find a, a dead body, don't touch it, but you put a flag next to it and, and, and mark it, and then the professional barriers are gonna come and deal with it. Why would you ever do that? Um, it's probably uh, radio, radioactive uh, material that you can't deal with. I mean, when you read it, uh, even in other places in the Bible, it talks about the the same kind of symptoms of radioactive poisoning. There, the Bible actually uh, talks about that in prophecy ways. Nuclear weapons will be part of the end time scenario. So, watching you know the doomsday clock when nuclear weapons will be used, it is kind of biblical prophecy unfolding. Right in front of us. So uh, that's where we, you know, go back to Zechariah 12:3. In that day, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people; that all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces. Though um, all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Um, you know, uh, some people say Biden's trying to help solve the problem in the Middle East. No, I would say Biden and his administration are burdening themselves with Jerusalem. And that's not gonna work out so well if they continue on the trajectory that they're going. So something uh, you know, uh, that we should sort of be watching. So uh, what should Christians be doing in light of all this? Uh, you know, two things. You know, we, we read in Luke how Jesus said in Luke 21, you know, 28, uh, and this was mainly to people that are gonna be in the tribulation period, but we can also claim this as our own. Uh, when you start to see these things happen, look up, lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. That's something we always kind of keep in mind. When you see things, instead of doom and gloom, we think about what? Boom and zoom, Boom and zoom. the rapture of the church. But you're just an escapist. What's our answer to that? Yeah. Yes, we're, we wanna escape these things. Uh, escaping all this sounds like a good plan to me. And Jesus said, pray that you be gone. Luke chapter 22. Pray that you be counted worthy to escape all these things. Um, Almost done, but a couple other uh, sort of unrelated things I wanted to, you know, lawlessness in the land, like all these things that we're seeing. There's so much we could talk about, but I just wanted to give you a couple. Did you see the pro-lifers that were arrested because they were singing hymns uh, in the in the abortion clinic? Uh, Here, I'll show you these horrible people. So these guys are protesting at an abortion clinic, singing hymns. If they were arrested, they put, should have been arrested for their singing club. But bless their hearts, you know. Um, so, so right now, if you know the story, uh, these guys are, were arrested, and uh, they have the possibility of 11 years in jail for doing this. And it has to do with um, them blocking the door here uh, from people being able to get ab- abortions and what have you. Uh, so they're up for 11 years and $100,000, you know, uh, fines. and like we'll see. I guess I think somewhere in July they're talking about making the ruling on the penalty of these people singing hymns. Um, it just seems a little, um, a little crazy uh, to, to uh, you know, is, is the is the law sort of, you know punishing people that uh, are actually trying to do good things. Meanwhile, people that are, have really bad intent, the law is not punishing. Are we seeing that? Yeah. Um, maybe you saw this. this I, when I heard this, I thought uh, some guy beheaded uh, Satan at the Ohio Capitol. Did you guys hear about that? I thought, well, that's weird. What a weird thing to do. But then I kind of read more about the story and then I watched him and he's not as insane as you might think. Um, in fact, here I brought a little snippet of, here's the guy that decapitated Satan at the Iowa Capitol. Now, if you don't know, well, you'll see. The the Satanists put a um, statue of of a demon or whatever in the Iowa Capitol and thought that was wonderful. This guy went and saw it. Check it out.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me, Jesse. This was uh, certainly a a spur of the moment kind of thing. I I saw that this uh, was going on. I was surprised that that the legislature allowed it up and that they didn't do anything to take it down just to, to take it down. And um, so I, I got to the Capitol and I didn't know what to expect when I got there, just like that scene in Illinois with tons of people chanting and whatnot. Um, I didn't know what was going to be there, but nobody <laughs> was there. Um, and it it offended me. It touched a nerve. It was, uh, you know, righteous indignation. I call it, you know, Christian uh, civil disobedience disobedience. Um, and, yeah, so I, I took the the statue that was there, and it or the, the idol, whatever you want to call it, uh, and then it's no longer there. <laughs> how precisely did you decapitate Satan?
0: Uh, he just asked, pulled
2: how did the head you off. decapitate it? Just pulled the head right off and yeah. let it crash just on pulled, the ground. Pulled it off, and then uh, it's just some, some cheap fabric, probably like, I don't know, 5 $10, something like that, um, tore it off, uh, pulled it apart, put it in a garbage bag, and then uh, then I went down to security and told them what I did. Uh, I wasn't running away or anything like that. I told them what, uh, what I did. They were very professional. Uh, then they gave me the citation and uh, sent me on my way.
0: Uh, now, um, this is interesting, you should note, um, that other guy, the, the, the guy with the beard, he's the guy's lawyer, but um, it's, it's ramped up because he was initially cited for criminal mischief in the fourth degree and was released after he told security that he destroyed the foil uh, statue or whatever. But the felony charge was added later because the spokesman for the um, Polk County Attorney's Office claimed the evidence uh, indicated that Cassidy destroyed the statue for religious reasons, which makes it a hate crime. So now he's being charged for a hate crime because he decapitated Satan. Um, so that could be a lot bigger charge that he might be facing. Um, so so this, you know, uh, I, I have to admit, I'm not sure I wouldn't have done that. I'm just saying, if I see this in the Oregon Capitol building and I see Satan being worshiped, I, I'm not sure I just want to just stand there and go, oh, hmm, get a, sh- a shot of it on my phone. No, I'm, I don't know. But um, kind of reminds me of Phineas of the Old Testament, if you recall that story, but... <laughs> Um, okay, but what happened to these guys, if you watched this last week? These are New York uh, police officers dealing with illegal uh, immigrants um, that are in a, one of those places. And the immigrants started attacking the police officers. Um, and it's quite, quite a you know, violent scene here, these two police officers. Fortunately, the police officers went away with minor injuries um, but they were kicked and attacked by these um, illegal immigrants that are that's a camp that's there in New York uh, City. Um, so surely these guys, when they caught them, <laughs> woo, it's like a cartoon. Um, um, but uh, surely these guys, when they were caught, they're, they're in jail, right? They're, they're, they're spending a lot of time in jail. They're going to spend hundreds. I mean, compared to our singing hymn people uh, there in the abortion clinic, These guys should be, right? Three hours, they were apprehended and then let go. Uh, They didn't have to pay any bail and they're good as free. Uh, that's, That's the legal law of the land. It reminds me of Isaiah 520 that says, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light, light for darkness, that we put, that put bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes, prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. He goes on in verse 23, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their roots shall be as rottenness and their blossoms shall go up as dust because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Um, when we see this stuff, we shouldn't just be angry. We should be really saddened because um, the, the wrath of God is coming and uh, the Lord is gonna right all these wrongs and injustice, relativism, existentialism, the lack of absolutes, It's one of the woes of Isaiah here, the the fourth woe, if you know your book of Isaiah. But basically, light is dark and dark is light. Sweet is bitter. You know, um, you you know, you can't say really say what's right and wrong for everybody in our current culture. What's right for you may not be right for me, and that's why we see this craziness when it comes to righteousness. Um, You know, light is dark. How do you make sure you're not following the darkness? I think the key is Jesus. Jesus is the very definition of light. In fact, John 8, 12, then spake Jesus again to them saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Um, I love being a follower of Jesus. He's the light. As long as we're following Jesus, keeping our eyes on Jesus. In fact, 1 Peter 2, 9, this is the last scripture I'll share with you. Um, uh, 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation peculiar people. I see that particularly in this group here. Uh, no, it's, it's great. I, I love our process Update crowd. Uh, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you, notice, out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what we've been called to. So, you know, as I wrap up this Particular prophecy, we talk about a lot of dark things and a lot of depressing things. But um, I'd like to end with the fact that, man, uh, you don't have to be in the darkness. You don't have to be in the dark intellectually. You don't have to be in the dark spiritually, emotionally. We have the light of Jesus Christ that gives us joy and a peace. And if, if you don't have that, uh, man, turn to Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian and you're watching what's going on in the world, the answer uh, is not going to be found in who we elect as president or who the next uh, politicians are. The answer is to follow Jesus. He's the answer. Um, become a Christian, repent of your sins, and accept Jesus Christ as your savior. That's the gospel message. All you have to do is repent and say, I'm a sinner and acknowledge that before God, and then confess with the mouth and believe in the heart Jesus that he died on the cross for your sins and accept that. Um, The Bible says you will be saved. Isn't that a glorious message? May may that be on the tip of our tongues in these dark days we're living because Jesus is the light of the world. We need to turn the light on real bad. So let's do that. Let's do that. Lord, we do pray um, that as we go our way tonight, that you would shine brightly through your church, Lord, and that we would see these dark days not as something to be depressed about, but to have that anticipation of you coming and ruling and reigning in this dark world, Lord. And we look forward to that day when you right the wrongs. But Lord, we also know there's a lot of lost people. And I pray that we would be instruments, Lord, used by your mighty hand, Lord, to to show people the light of life, the marvelous light that we get to serve and follow. Um, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't let the world situation get us down, but that we would keep our eyes on your son, Jesus. So bless these, your people. And we also pray blessing on the Cinnabon as much as possible, Lord, that you'd bless it. Uh, May it turn into kale uh, on the way down. (laughs) But uh, Lord, we thank you for the delicious food we're about to eat, Lord. In Jesus' name, all God's children said, amen.